All right. <clears throat> I greet you all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to be with you this evening. Uh, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for bringing us here by your grace. Holy Spirit, be with us as we conclude for the final time the on our series on congregationalism, Lord. I pray, Lord, that this sermon will be of some help and some use. Let it challenge us, Lord, and let it give us hope, Lord, for the future of your church. As, Lord, you intend to build your church on professors who, are, who profess the true biblical Jesus, the true biblical witness of the gospel. Holy Spirit, use me for your honor and glory in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Um, we have now come to the end of our series on church government that we have titled Congregationalism. And by a show of hands, how many of you have got some good out of this series? <clears throat> by a show of hands, how many of you, how many, how, how has this series changed your view of church government? How has it changed your view of church itself? Yeah, that's good. Praise God. And our aim in this series, and when I say our aim, I mean the elders, our aim in this series was to do a, a few things. The first aim was to recover biblical church polity. You guys, you guys remember what church, what church polity means, right? Church government. Same thing. And what we want to do is we wanted to recover what biblical church government, what biblical church polity looks like. Uh, the question that many ask before starting a church or the elders ask that are in the church or maybe even the members, what should be the organizational structure of the church? I mean, have you guys ever thought about that question? What should be the organizational structure of the church? How should we do church? Well, there's two ways that people normally, uh, two ways that people normally take when answering such question. Many would say that the church is and should be a free-for-all. That whatever the members of the church want, then that's what they will get. And then another answer that many will say is the decisions of the church shouldn't be left to the congregation. They should be left to the professionals, meaning the elders or pastors of the church. So it's either one or the two, either the whole congregation handles it all or the professionals, the elders handle uh, the matters Our pragmatic or innovative ways are enough to answer such question. None of our traditions can rightly justify how church should be governed. Only the Bible and the Bible alone can teach us how one should do church. Only the Bible teaches, only the Bible gives us the proper answer of the organizational structure of the church. As our confession says in chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, 
and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. So if we want to learn about church, how the church should be governed, then we must look at the Bible. But then we have to ask, does the Bible teach on how we ought to organize the church? Does the Bible teach on how we ought to organize the church? Does the Bible speak on what the organizational structure of the church should be? And indeed it does. And I think it's clear that the form of church government the Bible teaches is congregationalism. And I think in this series we've presented to you a pretty good case for congregationalism. So the first aim of this series was to introduce congregationalism, but also to recover what biblical church government looks like. The second aim was we, as the elders, wanted to raise the level of expectation in church membership. Christians have had a tendency to think that church membership only means that I have united myself with a local church and my only responsibility to that local church is to show up. Sadly, that's what many think. Christians tend to think that all that details in church membership is I receive a certificate and all I have to do is be there Sundays or Wednesdays or Sunday nights or whenever the church gathers. So basically, our church membership is nothing more or less than another ID card that we put on our key ring. So the church membership, your, your church membership ID card sits uh, and fits real nicely in between your gym membership and your Sam's Club membership and your CVS membership. That's how many people view church membership. And friends, that's not biblical true uh, church membership. And what we've seen in our series of church government is congregationalism doesn't allow for such, for such church membership to even exist. There's more that goes into church membership than just showing up. And I'll unpack that a little more in a bit. And our third aim in this series was to raise the thinking of what the local church should look like. Now, what I mean by that is the elders desire to show you, the congregation, that the authority in the church is not one-sided, but it's shared between elders and the congregation. The congregation has one form of authority, and the, con- and the elders have another. As it's been said behind this pulpit many times, the shepherds are sheep as well. And we all are under the care of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ. And I hope in this series you have, you have seen those three aims. But what now? As we close on this series of congregationalism, how should we move on from this series? What are some of the things that we should consider and remember from this series? What are some of the things that we can do to become a better and, more importantly, healthy congregationalist? Well, uh, in order for us to answer such questions, I have made a list, or I should say rather than calling it a list, I've, we want to title it Job Responsibilities. What are your job responsibilities moving on from this sermon, from, these, from this series? If you don't know, my occupation is I clean carpets. 
I'm a carpet cleaner. And in order for me to be a good carpet cleaner, I have to first know my product, right? I have to know how to mix our solution properly, how much water to put and, and how much solution to put. I have to know how to use a buffer. And I have to know how to rake a carpet. If I can know all of those things, and, I can put, and if I can put them in practice properly, then I will be a good carpet cleaner. Well, the same principle applies to being a good congregationalist. There are certain things and principles, responsibilities, that you need to know in order for you to be a good congregationalist. You have to know certain things, or else this form of church government, congregationalism, will not flourish and it will not be Christ-glorifying. So what can we take away from, these, from this series? What are, what are our job responsibilities as congregationalists? The first is know and defend congregationalism. Your first responsibility is to know and defend congregationalism. Number two, know the gospel. Know the gospel. And number three, protect your church and church members. Protect your church and church members. So job responsibility number one, know and defend the gospel. Job responsibility number two, know the gospel. And job responsibility number three, protect your church and church member. Let's look at the first. And that is know and defend congregationalism. So like I said... In order for me to be a good carpet cleaner, I must know and I must defend or be able to defend my product, just like you. In your work environment, you must know what your corporation stands for and what they believe in. But you also must know why wherever you're working is better than the next. You must know what your company does and why your company is better than others. The same principle applies to congregationalism. In order for you to be a good congregationalist, You must know why you're a congregationalist. But also, you must defend your position. And that that doesn't just, uh, that's not limited to just congregationalism. That's for any doctrine. You must know the doctrine that you are presenting, but also you must be able to defend it scripturally. But before we can touch congregationalism, we first must ask, is church government even important? Because many would say that church government is not even important. Does it matter if churches have any form of church government? And, of course, the answer to that is yes. It does matter the type of church government a church has. Church government is important because it, in part, establishes the local church. To argue for church government is to argue, in part, for the existence of the local church. Mind you guys, this is all review, by the way. We can also say that church polity or church government provides the connection between the universal church, which is made up of all believers from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and the visible church, which which are the believers who have united themselves to that local church, to a local church through church membership and baptism. And it can be seen regularly in the Lord's Supper. We can say without church government, 
then you have no church. But all you have is a bunch of Christians. So church government as a whole is important for the simple fact that God cares for how we worship him. It mattered to God how the the type of sacrifices that Israel brought to him. And the same rules apply here. It matters to God how we are to approach him, how we are to worship him, how we are to interact with one another. So church government as a whole is important. And the Bible speaks about church government. So now let's deal with congregationalism. In order for us to know congregationalism, we must have a clear understanding of what congregationalism is. So congregationalism is a form of church government. It's a form of church government that teaches that the congregation has the final rule of authority in matters of church discipline, membership, and doctrine. Let me say that one more time. Congregationalism is a form of church government that teaches that the congregation, each member of the local church, has the final role of authority in matters of church discipline, membership, and doctrine. Despite what many think, congregationalism does not teach that each member has a say in the color carpet the church wants to uh, put in. Or congregationalism does not teach that the congregation has a say in the, the pictures they want hung up in the church. However, or rather, congregationalism teaches that the, that the entire congregation is the final court of appeal when it comes to matters of church discipline, church membership, and doctrine. It speaks of who has the final say in those matters. And then that's what people want to know. Who has the final say in the church? Is it the pope? Is it the bishop? Is it the single pastor? Is it the group of elders? Or is it the entire congregation? If I can use a car analogy... Congregationalism puts the keys to the car in the hands of the congregation. Now, that might seem scary to some, because I know many of you remember when you put the keys of your own car into the hands of your teenage daughter or or son. You guys were terrified. However, the congregation does not drive that car alone. Just as your, your, your daughter or son might have drove the car alone. The congregation does not drive that car alone, but the elders are in the car with them. The elders are sitting in the passenger seat, and they are to guide them and direct them as the congregation drives the car. The elders are there to teach the congregation how to put the car in park, how to change the oil in the car. To relate to congregationalism, the elders are there to teach the congregation how to recognize uh, true gospel professions and what a go- false gospel profession looks like. The elders are there to lead the congregation. If we see something in your life that might be uh, harmful to your spiritual walk, 
whether it be staying away from false teachers, books, uh, certain media, etc., the elders are there to tell the congregation to go right or to make a U-turn when the congregation is heading down a dead end. And the elders are there to model to the congregation what a true Christian looks like. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.11, you are to imitate me as I imitate Christ. The congregation is to follow the example and model of their elders insofar as the elders model and example Christ. If the elders are not modeling and exemplifying Christ, then quite frankly, you are not to model them. You are actually to tell them their faults. And you will be perfectly just in doing so. You can also say that the elders are trainers. Elders don't take the at-bat for the church. They model the swing. They teach the swing. And they teach the congregation how to read the pitches. And then they bring the entire congregation up to the at-bat. That's congregationalism. More precisely, that's elder-led congregationalism. The elders lead and the congregation rules. But how can we defend that? It sounds really nicely, but can we speak of congregationalism biblically? Can we defend it biblically? And I think we can by using three texts. And we're going to turn there, um, but let's first look at the first set of texts. That, and we see that in Matthew 16, verses 13 and 20, and then Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. We see the first set of texts in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20, and Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. So Jesus says in Matthew 16, uh, chapter 16, verses 13 through 20, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Peter answers correctly. I'm, I'm giving you a little summarization of it. G, uh, Peter answers correctly. And in verse 19, Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you guys see that there? So Jesus gives Peter the keys of the kingdom for binding and loosing. And in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, Jesus uses the same language of binding and loosing but rather giving the keys to Peter or giving it to another group, he gives them to the entire church. So turn to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 15 on down. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him, to be, you, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let's stop there. Take note of this. 
in defending congregationalism, notice how the final court of appeal isn't a single pastor or a group of elders. But you see there in the text, who has the final court of appeal? The church. Christ says, take it to the church. Mind you, Christ is talking about church discipline, which is the highest form of authority one can have in the church. And then in verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And he concludes by saying in verse 24, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Verse 18 we, we, have, we have seen and heard that language before, right? That was in Matthew 16. What Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 8, 16, uh, verse 19, he says to the whole church in Matthew 18, verse 18, chapter 18, verse 18. Let me repeat that one more time so you guys can write it. What Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, 19, he says to the whole church in Matthew 18, 18. The whole church, therefore, owns, possesses the keys of the kingdom in matters of church membership and church discipline. Or you can say the entire church possesses the keys of the kingdom for binding and loosing. You, church member, speak on the behalf of heaven in affirming and rejecting kingdom or gospel citizens. That's what it means to have the keys of the kingdom. You speak on the behalf of heaven. You have a greater authority than the, than the deans in the Ivy League schools or, and of the uh, seminary professors at the best seminaries in the world or the president of the United States because you speak on the behalf of Christ because you have the keys of the kingdom. The second proof text for congregationalism is seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn there, if you will. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is Paul is writing to the church in Corinth regarding a person who's in the congregation that's sexually immoral. So Paul's writing to this church in Corinth, and he's giving them some instruction on how to handle this person who's in the church that is caught in sin. In verses 4 and 5, Paul says, When you are, are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. First thing to note here is Paul is calling upon the entire congregation to expel this person from, mem- from fellowship, from membership. But look what Paul says in verse 4 again. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus... We have heard that before. We've heard that concept before, haven't we not? Because what does Jesus say in Matthew 18, verse 20? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. And mind you, Jesus in that context in Matthew 18 is speaking about church discipline. What is Paul speaking about in 1 Corinthians 5? 
church discipline. So what Paul is doing is Paul is assuming that the congregation has and owns, possesses the keys of the kingdom. To expel this person, this sexually immoral person from the entire congregation. And what's interesting is Paul is an apostle. He says in verse 3 that he has already rendered judgment upon that sexual immoral person. And in verse 4 and 5, he calls upon the entire church to render final judgment. It could have been very easy for Paul to just to go in and to take matters into his own hands. But Paul understands congregationalism. And Paul understands that the congregation possesses the keys of the kingdom for church discipline. So he is writing to this church and he is telling them to remove this man from fellowship. But look at verse 12. Look what, look what Paul says in verse 12, which I find very interesting. And if you don't have a Bible, then you can share with someone, or if you can look it up, this will be really helpful for you. When Paul says, for what, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Notice there that the you is plural. So he's speaking to this more than one individual. He's speaking to the entire congregation. And he says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? That's not my job. That's your job. You are to take action in this matter of this man who is sexually immoral. Paul is saying it's not my job to deal with this person, but it's the entire congregation's job to execute judgment upon that individual. So congregationalism has the final say in matters of church discipline. And let's look at the third proof text, which is seen in Galatians chapter 1. Turn there, if you will. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting what him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one who the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Notice who Paul is writing to. Paul is not writing to the elders of the church and he's not writing to the bishops of the church or the single pastors. He's writing to the entire church. And notice who Paul holds responsible in matters of doctrine. Who does Paul hold responsible? The entire church. Not, not the elders of the church and not the single pastor. But the entire church is held responsible for the, the doctrine that they allow inside their church. The entire church will be held accountable for the doctrine they allow to creep into the church. Well, uh, there you have it. I think that that's a pretty strong biblical case for congregationalism. We see that in the words of Christ, and we see it practiced in the words of Paul. In a nutshell, we can say that congregationalism gives the whole church a job, and the elders train the church to do that job. Congregationalism teaches that the church, that church membership, it's much more than showing up to church on Sunday or Wednesday. 
but it's a call to ministry. Your church membership is a call to ministry because you have been called to an office. It's a charge to take up an office and speak and rule on the behalf of heaven. So that's your first job responsibility. In order to be a good congregationalist, you must know what congregationalism is and you must know how to defend it. Let's look at your second job responsibility, and that is you are to know the gospel. Know the gospel. In order to be a good congregationalist, you must know what the gospel is. Since every church member speaks on the behalf of heaven and possesses the keys of the kingdom for binding and loosing, then it's each member's responsibility for knowing the gospel. I'm going to tackle this point by using two subpoints. The first subpoint, what is the gospel? And the second is, why do I need to know the gospel? The first subpoint, what is the gospel? And the second, why do I need to know the gospel? And you can add to that, why do I need to know the gospel in order to be a good congregationalist? So let's first let's answer the first subpoint and that is what is the gospel? The gospel is not Jesus wants to be your friend. The gospel is Jesus wants you to be a good person. The gospel is not simply God loves you. And the gospel is not the gospels in the Bible. The gospel is the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel, and you can add this to your theological dictionary, the gospel is Christocentric because the gospel is all about Christ. The gospel is less about you, and it's more about the goodness and the faithfulness of God and what he has done in his son to redeem lost humanity. That's the gospel. But let me give you more of a detailed answer. The gospel begins with the all-sufficient, most holy, wise, unchangeable, good God. The gospel, or God as creator, creates all things, And he creates man in his own image. Man was to know and love God while keeping his law and expanding God's glory to the ends of the earth. However, man, who represented all humanity, chose to rebel against God, thus separating us from God. Everyone now is born separated from God. They are born enslaved to their sin, and they hate God. They don't choose God. They don't long after God. They don't understand the things of God. However, or we can say, like the Bible says so many times, but God. But God, because of his great love and mercy, he promised a redeemer to come. One who will crush the head of the serpent and redeem his people from a slave market of sin. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became flesh and lived, died, and rose from the dead for all who would believe in him. In his life, Jesus completed the works of the law that was given to him by his Father in eternity past. 
on the cross, Jesus stood in the place of guilty sinners. He absorbed and satisfied the wrath of God for all of those who would believe in him. And in his resurrection, Jesus showed that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father and that God's wrath has been exhausted. Jesus now calls us to repent of our sins and trust in him alone for our salvation. If one repents of their sins, abandons their self-righteousness, and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, God promises that they will be saved and they will never see death, but they will live and spend eternity with him forever. However, we also have to include the great cost it is in following our Lord Jesus Christ. In following our Lord Jesus Christ, you might be abandoned by many. However, knowing Christ and the infinite worth it is in calling God Abba Father and and being able to come to God with free access day and night is worth more than friendships, family, and the things of this world. But, but we, have to, we, have to, we have to ask, and we have to say in our gospel presentation, is, it, is that all worth it? Is that all worth it? Friends, that's the gospel, and that's what every Christian should know. Friends, that's Christianity 101. Every Christian should know the gospel. That is our hope. And that is the hope for sinners across this world. The gospel is greater news than you getting a 4.0 on your GPA. The gospel is greater news than you getting straight A's. That the gospel is better news than than your 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 daughter or or brother or whoever graduating college. Are you getting a raise in your job? The gospel is life transforming news. And it's our job responsibility to know it. It's our hope. It's sinner's hope. We can tell sinners that they don't have to wait till the final day of judgment to know if they were ever good enough to enter heaven. Because the reality is, you're not good enough. No one's good enough outside of Christ. However, you can know right now that your spot in heaven is reserved by abandoning your own good deeds, your own good works, repenting of your sins, and trusting in Jesus Christ alone. To, big, to uh, piggyback on what Pastor was saying on Sunday, we, we should never get tired of hearing the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. We should never feel like we have exhausted all of our knowledge and understanding the gospel. Because as simple as the gospel message is, it's very complex. But why is it complex? Because we can't understand that a God would do something like that for us. As pastor said, and as you read the Psalms for us, what is man that you are mindful of him? In redeeming us and in waking us up and blowing wind over our dry bones. We should never get tired of hearing the gospel. We should never become unmoved when we hear the gospel It should never become cliche to us. Well, that's the gospel. And sadly, it does in many Christians' lives. It becomes cliche. Another uh, uh, church word. Church membership, or you as a church member, 
it is not it is your job and responsibility to know this good news to be able to defend it to be able to speak it boldly and yes it takes work understanding the gospel takes work and i understand all of that but wouldn't you want to know and better yet wouldn't you want to explain to someone what your savior did for you in all honesty I don't know what it means for someone to be a Christian and not know the gospel. You have to know the gospel. So seriously, friends, in all seriousness, ask yourselves, how well do I know the gospel? Really think about that question. And and also, do I really believe the gospel? Do I really believe the gospel? Because the things that you are that you believe the most, you will know the most. Sub point number two, why should I know the gospel? Why should I know the gospel? And and how does this relate to congregationalism? And I want us, I want to present to you in answering this sub point, I want to present to you a scenario that could happen in January or February when we present new uh, potential new members uh, to the congregation. Let's think back to Matthew 16 and the keys of the kingdom for a second. Let's turn to Matthew 16 and Let's let that help us answer why is it important for us to know the gospel in congregational life. Again, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say or who do people say that the Son of Man is? So if you guys remember when we had the potential new members come up before you and you guys were to vote them in to church, What they were doing was they were presenting to you their gospel presentation, right? Just as, just as we ask potential new members, who do you say Jesus is? And what did he do? Just like Jesus says in verse 13, who do people say that the Son of Man is? But, but you can see, as you can see in verse 14, there are many different views of who Jesus is. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. No different from today, right? Many would say that Jesus is simply a good moralist or a miracle worker. However, when these potential new members are being presented to you, we don't want to know what the world thinks about Jesus. We want a biblical understanding. We want to know if you have a biblical understanding of Jesus, who Jesus is, the Jesus of the Bible, That's what we are interested in, are we not? And look at verse 15 through 17. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus blessed him and answered him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So Peter gives the right confession of who Jesus is, or we can say it this way. Peter gives the right profession of faith, just like we want those potential new members to give us a right profession of faith. We want them to give us a right biblical view of who Jesus is and what the gospel is. Same rules apply. That's what we are interested in, the right biblical professions of Christ and the gospel. And I tell you, verse 18, you are Peter and on this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So how is Jesus going to build his church? 
How is Christ going to build his church? Professors professing the right profession of faith. If you're taking notes, write that down. How is Christ going to build his church? The three P's. (laughs) Professors professing the right profession of faith. Once more time, professors professing the right profession of faith. What did Peter do? Peter was the professor. And what did he do? What did Christ want him to do? Profess what? Who Christ is, the right profession of faith. And mind you, that Jesus, when Peter gave his profession of faith, of who Christ was, Jesus had two options, right? He can either accept that profession or he can reject that profession. Just like us, when new members are presented, we have two options, either to accept that gospel profession or reject that gospel profession. Does that make sense? Jesus, professors professing the right profession of faith, or we can say this to to make it fit our context. And maybe you want to write this down. Jesus will build his church on potential new members professing the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will build his church on new members presenting the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how Christ intends to build his church. But how does that relate to us knowing the gospel? How does that relate to us being a congregational church? And how does that relate to us knowing the gospel? But I think the better question is, how does it not relate to us knowing the gospel? Because imagine this, if we don't know the gospel, then we run the risk of voting in a new member who professed to us a false gospel. And now they are in the church and we can't do nothing about it. So what we have now in the church is we have a church that has a mixed opinion on the very thing that we all should agree upon, the gospel. We are not to allow false gospels to enter this church. You are responsible for not allowing false gospels to enter the church, just like Paul said in, in Galatians 1, right? When he, told, when, he, when he was astonished that the congregation was believing a false gospel. So how does it relate to congregationalism and knowing the gospel? Well, if you don't know the gospel, then you're vulnerable in believing and accepting new members who profess to you false gospels. It's our duty and our job responsibility to speak on the behalf of heaven because we own the key, we hold the keys of the kingdom for accepting kingdom citizens and at times rejecting kingdom citizens. So church member, Christ has given you the privilege in partaking and building his church. And we want the church of Christ to be built on Christians who professed the same Christ and the same gospel. That is in the Bible. Knowing the gospel is vitally important because without knowing the gospel, without each member knowing the gospel and what it is, then congregationalism will not survive. And mind you, it's not up to me to know the gospel. It's not up to the elders to know the gospel. It's up to, it's up to the entire church to know 
the gospel, to take on that responsibility. And let's look, let's look at our last responsibility, job responsibility, and that is to protect your church and church members. Protect your church and church members. Now, this point is going to be a little bit more practical, <clears throat> but since we all have a responsibility in knowing the gospel, then that means each member is responsible for caring and watching over the next member's spiritual soul. Let me say that one more time. Since we all have a responsibility in knowing the gospel, then that means each member is responsible. You are responsible for caring and watching over the next member's spiritual soul. You can also say that, that each member is, in, is entrusting the next member with their spiritual soul. Therefore, your job responsibility is to watch over and protect every single church member in your local church. Question, church member. Do you care for and love each one of your local church members? Do you care for and love each one of your local church members? Now, before you say yes, like Doreen just did, um, <laughs> we have a tendency to think that all that pertains in loving and caring is the physical things or the things that are seen, right? So we tend to think that love and care are only meant in physical ways, are meant to be done in physical ways, such as preparing meals if Brother Joe is going to be sick for a few days, or helping Sister Susie take care of the kids as she works late, or even taking a family out to dinner or lunch, or even going up to someone and telling them hi and conversating with them. We tend to think that, oh, that person cares for me because of what they did for me. Or what I have seen them do in the past. However, I'm not knocking those things. Those are all great things. But I think Christ calls us to a more deeper, intimate love and care. Where its foundation is the gospel. You know, you might know, and I know many of you have relationships with one another, and that's great, and you might know Brother Joe's favorite movie to watch. And you might know Sister Susie's favorite restaurant. However, do you know the spiritual well-being of Brother Joe and Sister Susie? Do you know if Brother Joe is understanding the gospel? And do you know what sin Sister Susie is currently dealing with? That's what, I, that's what I mean when I, when, when I speak about a more intimate care and love for your church member. That goes beyond those temporal, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? And hey, did you catch that movie yesterday? Or have you ate at this new hot restaurant? But are you asking those questions that pierce the heart and that, and that, and that get at the, the real matter? Brother, how are you doing in your spiritual walk? Is there anything you need me to pray for you? Um, how, how are you doing understanding that sermon on Sunday? I was a little lost on this point. What do you think? That's the type of relationship that we need to build in this church. And if you're not asking those questions with each church member, why not? Why aren't you asking those spiritual church questions to each member? Because, friends, it's not up it's not up to the elders to handle the spiritual matters of the church while you guys go out for dinner and ice cream. It's, it's all of our duty. It's all of our duty to 
play a role in discipling each other in order that we all may grow in Christ. The one thing that we all need help with is our walk with Christ. Not, not what we should eat for dinner or not what movie we should go watch on Saturday. We all need help with our walk with Christ. We all need help with our, our sanctification process as we battle daily with the flesh and the temptations that arise. And friends, Christ doesn't, the great thing about, the great thing about the gospel and the great thing about the local church is Christ doesn't intend for you to do any of those things alone. He does not intend for your spiritual walk to be alone. But he has given you two things, the Holy Spirit and the local church. Sure, Christianity starts off private. However, it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. You can also say that if you have that sort of um, me-centered approach to Christianity, it's sort of like driving in a dark alley with your headlights off. Sure, you can do it, but it's not safe. You need those headlights, and those church members are to be those headlights. Brother, you're going the wrong way. I think, I think you need to reconsider. I think you need to think about some other things. Brother, I, I see some things in your life that, that I want to model. How, tell me, how, how is your prayer life? You know, things like that. <clears throat> Congregationalism doesn't allow for such lone, for a, for a such lone ranger Christianity to exist. Congregationalism doesn't allow for that to exist. Each member must know the spiritual well-being of other members. And friends, our love and care for each other doesn't stop on Sunday and pick back up on Wednesday. It's a weekly thing. It's a weekly thing. You must every day be concerned with the next member's spiritual well-being. So are you calling or texting the brothers and sisters during the week just for checking up on them, seeing how they're doing? Are you meeting with other members for occasional Bible studies? Maybe at Starbucks. Or are you meeting with them for prayer? Are you coming to things that are on the church calendar, such as prayer, the race, outreach evangelism, where you know other members will be there? Another opportunity for you to talk to them and maybe encourage them. Are you going through your church members' directory and praying for each one? That is, that's what it means to invest in the lives of each member in your local church. And that is your job responsibility. And what, that ha- and what happens when, when each member is on their job responsibility? What happens is the church visibly reflects the invisible God whom they serve. The church reflects visibly the invisible God whom they serve. As Christ tells his disciples, how, how are they going to know that you are my disciples? By the love that you have for one another. By the love that you have for one another. So my charge to you, when you leave, or maybe on Sunday, or maybe through a text, ask the person whom you talk to most frequently in this church, do you know the gospel? And if so, can you explain it to me? Do you know the gospel? And if so, can you explain it to me? And friends, in you doing that, you are helping preserve the gospel, integrity of the church. 
you are guarding the what and the who of the gospel. Now, before we end this teaching, I want to give you just quick, four quick job responsibilities, just four quick ones that you can just jot down, okay? Attend church regularly. Attend church regularly. Scripture could not be more clear about this fundamental responsibility. And one of the way, and one of the reasons, the main reasons why you should attend church regularly is for you to give yourself to the love and good works and encouragement. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of son, some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As the day draws near, as the coming of the Lord draws near, we need to become closer to each other. Number two, involve yourself in the life of the church. Involve yourself in the life of the church. Look for ways in which you can help out the church. I love what Paul says in in Romans 12, verses 10 through 13. Love one another with brotherly affection. And I would actually read this before I come to church every Lord's Day and Wednesday. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Number three, attend member meetings. If you are a member of this church, it is your responsibility to attend member meetings. Member meetings are the place, is the place where your, our congregationalism is to be put in action. But also, too, we see the maturity of our congregationalism. At member meetings, we take votes over uh, the things we should spend the church money on. Uh, we hear praise reports from fellow members. We hear what's going on in every department. We hear about uh, maybe potential uh, candidates for the elders or, or deacon role. Your fifth, your, your fourth responsibility is to disciple other church members. Disciple other church members. And that's the great thing about congregationalism is if one doesn't know the gospel, then one, the other, can teach that one the gospel. We all are helping each other, understand and grow in the things of the Lord. And your last responsibility is to follow your leaders. Follow your leaders. It is your job. It's the job of the pastors or elders to equip the saints for ministry. As Paul tells uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that you are in Christ Jesus. And as Hebrews 13.17 says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work may be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Friends, church members, make your leaders' work enjoyable. And I want to close by reading something from the book that we have been going through 
This is the book that we have uh, taking, uh, taken a, a lot of information from. It's called Don't Fire Your Church Members, The Case for Congregationalism by Jonathan Lehman. And I would advise all of you to pick this up. He also has a little book on uh, congregationalism, which will be uh, uh, handy as well. So you can actually get that book, and then when you graduate that little, from that little pamphlet, you can read this. But let this be our closing remarks. You, as a church member are responsible to act if Pastor Ed begins to teach a false gospel. You are responsible to help ensure member candidate Chris properly understands the gospel. You are responsible for Sister Sue's discipleship in Christ to see that she's being cared for and, and nurtured toward Christ's likeness. And you are responsible to ensure that member Max is excluded from the fellowship of the church if his life and profession no longer agree. I guess after reading that, the only thing that I have left to say is let's get to work. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful time. I pray that that was some encouragement for your people. I pray that now they have a better understanding of congregationalism and the God-glorifying church government that that is. In Christ's name, amen.